you know tigers are uh, a conservation dependent species so the moment they receive good protection their habitat is secured they have enough water they have enough uh, prey base to feed on they breed well thanks for tuning in to episode 15 of season 1 we blue dot a conservation podcast enjoy listening Welcome everyone and thanks for joining us for another episode of We Blue Dot. It's exciting to be joined by Kedar Gori, director of the Corbett Foundation, a charitable NGO dedicated to the conservation of wildlife in India. The organization works with local people on a vast array of projects and embeds community involvement in all of its work. Kedar has a background in zoology and management has numerous qualifications in conservation and has been engaged in wildlife conservation for over 20 years. And so with that, thank you so much for joining us and it's great to finally meet you albeit virtually. Thank you so much for uh, having me on this uh, podcast Katie. It's my absolute pleasure and honor. No, it's great to to have you on as I say we've we've talked and communicated for years in various jobs but we're finally getting to meet. So first of all can you tell everyone just where you're joining us from today um and how's life been over there in the last year or so? I I'm based in Bombay, uh Mumbai, India and so I'm connecting from my home right now. Since the covid has started uh, we have been you know as everyone else in the world we have been sort of working from home. I being in the city of Bombay where uh, there are a huge huge number of covid cases. so we are taking extra precautions uh, however my colleagues elsewhere uh, they are luckier than me because they are based around some fantastic uh, forest areas in the country hmm. uh, where uh, covid cases are uh, fortunately very less and uh, they have the privilege to be out on out in the field uh, more than i can but I, i i really hope to catch up with them very soon and i hope that uh, you know this this whole pandemic thing will eventually uh, you know uh, slowly slowly the cases will drop and we will be able to move back to normal but i think uh, this has really taught us uh, to respect nature mm-hmm. uh, more than we all were realizing before uh, covid came in so i'm i'm really hopeful that uh, all of us uh, from across the world Would, would now henceforth be extra respectful towards nature the biodiversity and everything around us mm-hmm. no totally i agree um and hopefully as you say it's, it's it stays that way going forward everyone keeps that kind of attitude I mean. <laughs> towards nature i hope i think a lot of the people in my life will um it's just in general it's going to be around for a long time so i i think people have realized over here anyway how important it is to Yeah, to be able to get outdoors in nature, as you say, your colleagues who are living in the countryside near the forest, they've got access to to it more than you right now. So yeah, we realise how important it is to our kind of day to day lives. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So can you start by telling us a little bit about the Corbett Foundation for anyone who's listening who's never heard of it? What what is it about? How was it founded? Um, and what's your role within the organisation? uh the corbett foundation is a charity that was established in india in 1994 so we have now completed more than 26 years and it was founded by uh, 
a very kind-hearted gentleman, Mr. Dilip Khatao, uh, who has been a very uh, well-known industrialist in our country and uh, has his wildlife conservation is as a special place in his heart. Uh, and he has been, uh, you know, passionate about conserving, conserving wildlife, especially tigers, uh, since his childhood and which took him to many places across the country. And finally, in 1994, he realized that if we have to do something actively for the conservation, uh, a lot of issues of human wildlife conflict have to be addressed. And with this main objective, uh, the Corbett Foundation was born uh, on the Earth Day of 1994. Mm -hmm. uh, and we started off uh, from uh, India's first uh, national park, uh, which is known as Corbett National Park, and now, of course, declared as a tiger reserve. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, the name, the Corbett Foundation. Uh, and Corbett, as uh, everyone would know, uh, you know, it's named after the noted hunter cum conservationist uh, Jim Corbett, uh, who did phenomenal work for protection of tiger habitat in, in the Uttarakhand Himalayas. Mm -hmm. So eventually, uh, you know, we started working uh, in and around Corbett Tiger Reserve. And uh, as, as I said, the main uh, focus was to mitigate human wildlife conflict. You know, in, in India has about 50 odd tiger reserves and uh, many of these tiger reserves are surrounded by, you know, dense network of villages. There are villages even inside the tiger reserves. A lot of people live there, a lot of livestock live there. And, you know, there's, uh, I mean, the animals and human beings, they live next to each other. Uh, sometimes uh, there are interactions, not so pleasant, uh, so we, we have to ensure that, you know, that is uh, this existence uh, becomes a coexistence yeah. and, uh, and that to an harmonious one. So to achieve this, uh, we, whatever we do and we have planned and executed so far has this, um, you know, underlying principle of coexistence between human beings and uh, wildlife around them. All our programs have been uh, extremely human centric. Uh, although we would say that we primarily work for tiger conservation or any kind of wildlife conservation, uh, and I'll come to that very soon. But our programs are designed in a way that the people living around the wilderness habitats, they are a part of this conservation process. Uh, they are not alienated. I mean, we, we want them to be involved as much as possible. We want them to be a partners in conservation. And that's how we look at them. That's how we design the programs for them. And uh, that's how we execute it with their participation. So we have, uh, we look at their medical needs. Uh, we look at their veterinary needs. Uh, we, we undertake several rural development programs that makes their lives less dependent on forests uh, and the resources so that, you know, they have to go less into the forest India, you know, many, many villages still use the traditional cookstoves that burn fuel wood. And that puts them in touch with, uh, basically, interaction with uh, wild animals. Mm -hmm. And uh, many times this interaction are, are, uh, can be fatal because uh, there's large mammals, there large carnivores, whether tigers or leopards or bears or even large herbivores like elephants. The interaction can be very dangerous. 
So uh, we try and you know providing them providing them with alternatives that their uh, lives will be less dependent on these uh, forest resources. Mm. Now eventually, uh, about ten years after we started working uh, in Corbett Tiger Reserve, we expanded our work to the western part of the country, which is a completely different landscape. Corbett Tiger Reserve is a forest, you know, foothills of the Himalayas and uh, dense forests, uh, rivers, and a completely mesmerizing landscape. Whereas when we started working in the western part of India, it was a dry area. It is a dry area, basically. The fabric is such; it's a it's a grassland, it's a semi-arid uh, region, and uh, that gives a perception that oh, there's nothing here, you know. Mm, yeah. uh, however, it's a completely different ecosystem. Uh, you may not have tigers, you may not have elephants, you may not have uh, that those kind of charismatic large mammals, but then you have a completely different uh, set of uh, fauna here. Uh, we have the world's probably the world's uh, most threatened uh, species of a bird, the great Indian bustard, uh, which less than 150 exist uh, on the planet today. And wow. most of them are in India and very few in probably in Pakistan. Uh, we started working on the conservation of these, uh, you know, endangered species. And apart from that, there are other uh, species of birds um, like lesser florican, which is a smaller uh, bustard species. There are several other, uh, you know, animals like Caracal, like hyena, the wolf. So all these occupy a different uh, ecosystem, which is uh, different from the tiger-occupied uh, forest. And we focused our attention towards that. So, but the pattern of the program remains the same. I mean, involving the locals in conservation issues and everything remains the same because although you know the kind of uh, problems would be local specific, however, the pattern of the problems would be more or less uh, you know same. Um, you know, dependence on ecosystems and, you know, uh, bushmeat hunting and any kind of, you know, interaction that probably puts people uh, in, in confrontation with animals. Mm. And eventually we started working in central India, uh, where again, it's a tiger landscape, but a different kind of uh, forest than what we see in northern India. And then we also work in Kaziranga, which is a, a floodplain of the mighty Brahmaputra River. Uh, which again is a tiger reserve, but also has uh, one of one of the largest uh, land mammals that we have, uh, the later one on rhinoceros of India. Uh, then we also work in the northeast, uh, other part of the northeast where uh, it's 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 a rainforest. Yeah. So, so different different kinds of landscapes that we work in and. Uh, it's it's fun actually exploring all these places and knowing uh, the interaction between people and uh, wildlife there, trying to solve their problems. Yeah, no, it, I was thinking as you were talking, thinking right enough for anyone not listening who doesn't know a great deal about the landscape of India. Yeah, it's there's so many different environments and ecosystems and habitats, aren't there? It, it, but that it's a challenge for you, I imagine. But as you say, I, it also makes it interesting because not only have you got the different kind of environments to work in and, and people that in the environments that people live in, you've got all these different species. Can you talk a wee bit about the kind of bigger, as you say, the bigger mammals, the the more the big charismatic species that people perhaps are are more used to thinking of when they think of India? So, like as you said, you know, tigers and leopards and and, and elephants and things. So 
is the main problem with the likes of them because people are moving into their their habitats and living alongside them what kind of things does the corbett foundation do to help them yes of course so uh, yes i i i fully agree that uh, you know when we talk of tigers uh, india comes to the mind of the world and yeah. uh, that's absolutely uh, it's a truth that almost 75% of the world's wild tigers are surviving in india today Mm. So on an average, I would say about 3,000 odd tigers live in this country. And, uh, you know, India started Project Tiger in 1973. Mm-hmm. Uh, India has always been, uh, you know, uh, an excellent, uh, I would say, a habitat for a tiger in, mm-hmm. in, in most, of the, most of the country, except for the western part and, you know, coastal areas and stuff like this. Otherwise, most of the parts in India uh, had tiger presence uh, at the turn of the century. However, a lot of uh, uh, hunting took place uh, in the 19, uh, 19, uh, 20, early 20th century mm. and before that. And uh, that led to decimation of uh, tiger numbers uh, drastically. Uh, so, uh, it so happened that when the Project Tiger was launched in 1973, uh, only about 1,500 tigers were living. That was the estimate uh, put by a tiger biologist. And that was an alarming uh, you know, scenario for India because mm. the country which probably boasted of having more than 40,000 tigers, now coming down to 1,500 tigers was extremely alarming. Yeah. So, uh, you know, on an urgent basis, Project Tigers were launched. And uh, so that provided uh, a lot of uh, extra protection to tiger-bearing forests in this country. And, uh, you know, some extra funds were made available, some training to the frontline forest staff, and a lot of other mm, uh, schemes were uh, floated that helped uh, Project Tiger and that helped recover the tiger population. In the in the initial stages, about nine uh, national parks and sanctuaries were a part of Project Tiger. And today, there are 50 uh, odd tiger reserves in this country, occupying about 72,000 uh, square kilometer total area, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite significant because for a country like India, where a lot of population, uh, human population exists, uh, to find this kind of uh, an area uh, to protect strictly for the tigers is incredible. Yeah. Uh, and this, this led to a lot of successes in the sense uh, uh, many of the tiger reserves uh, actually helped in uh, phenomenal breeding of tigers. And, you know, tigers are, uh, you know, are conservation dependent species. So, the moment they receive good protection, uh, their habitat is secured, they have enough water, they have enough uh, prey base to feed on, they they breed well. Mm-hmm. And this happened in many of the tiger reserves and uh, slowly, slowly the numbers started increasing. And the latest uh, count that uh, India did uh, in 2018 revealed that there are about 3,000 tigers. Mm. Of course, uh, from 1,500 to 3,000, it's not a such big uh, jump. No. But when these numbers are increasing, there are also a lot of problems that the tigers are facing. Uh, uh, the number one uh, problem is in India today is uh, habitat loss. 
yeah. um, a lot of forest because you can protect uh, tiger reserves, but there are uh, tigers also present outside these tiger reserves. Mm -hmm. It's not just tiger reserves where tigers are restricted. They are, uh, you know, the, as the population grows, tigers have to move out of, uh, you know, their areas and establish new territories. They're territorial animals. So when this happens, they have to move out of tiger reserves and this is where uh, they are vulnerable to poaching uh, threats. Mm. And uh, poaching is second largest uh, threat to tigers today in, in, in India and everywhere else in the world. Uh, there is huge demand for tiger uh, parts and products in uh, Southeast Asia and, and of course China. So uh, there is a there are routes established where tigers are poached and then taken to these areas uh, through, you know, in an illegal way, of course. Yeah. Uh, and the, there are a large number of uh, poaching gangs operational. And of course, our forest department is trying its best. Uh, other agencies, police and everyone else is also trying their best to stop this. But uh, this menace is something that is difficult to stop completely. Mm -hmm. uh, it can only be uh, curtailed to an extent and kept under, uh, you know, I mean, only few probably uh, tiger poaching cases may may eventually happen in India of, of if everything else falls in place correctly. Mm -hmm. But uh, we have to assume that poaching will happen and at the same time continue, uh, uh, you know, offering uh, good protection to the existing tiger habitats. But uh, apart from the tiger reserves, tiger, as I said, tigers also exist outside the tiger reserves. So protecting these places which are outside of tiger reserves is also equally important because these are the areas uh, say from uh, um, tiger reserve A to tiger reserve B mm -hmm. that tiger has to cross through some kind of corridor mm -hmm. and this corridor is very uh, crucial if that is fragmented if that is uh, you know goes away for some kind of a development then the tiger population from A to B cannot mix and that will affect the genetic variability of the species. So all these are very complex issues when you yeah. look at a very populous country like India. But I think given uh, despite all these uh, difficulties and you know challenges, India has done uh, a phenomenal job in uh, protecting its national animal. Apart from tiger, I mean, we have, uh, we have other large cats like leopard, which is, which is, uh, uh, I would say, uh, equally charismatic than uh -huh. a tiger. I personally, I personally like the leopard uh, even more than a tiger. <laughs> yeah. That's a personal choice. Uh, it's a very, very phenomenal animal, very adaptable, um, uh, of course, and it's absolutely stunningly beautiful. And uh, it can live in, ex in, in a variety of habitats, mm -hmm. um, you know, dry areas to wet forests everywhere. So the adaptability is phenomenal. I mean, I live in the city of Mumbai and we have a very beautiful uh, national park right at the outskirts of our city, uh, which is called Sanjay Gandhi National Park, which is the, uh, you know, we, we are actually all Mumbai, uh, Mumbai living citizens are actually blessed that we have this fantastic forest right in the, uh, you know, heart of the city and people can actually go and experience uh, the forest and forest ecosystem first and uh, without you know spending much uh, in in their pocket so and we have about 40 more than 40 leopards living in that forest wow and uh, they are surviving uh, you know 
very close to human habitation. There are cases where leopards do come in uh, human habitation because they uh, they they also prefer uh, stray dogs as food. Yeah. And uh, there is a huge population of stray dogs in India because of you know trash and you know all all issues. I mean even people. Uh, there are kind-hearted people in, in in this country who who love to uh, feed uh, you know street dogs, and uh, that has ensured that the street dog population always has remained uh, you, you know in, in particular numbers in in the city, and this attracts the leopards to the city many times. So yeah. there are cases where leopards come in, and you know there are some conflict issues as well. But then the forest department has. Have has some mechanism where uh, they they can rescue some animals and take them back to the forest and you know reduce all these kind of the conflicts. So I mean there are elephants, there are rhinos. I mean elephants are you know uh, large mammals uh, which which require huge habitats. Mm. Uh, you know ele- that's elephants like to uh, move from one place to another because they eat a lot. The requirement of uh, you know plant food is tremendous. So yeah. if they, by nature, if they remain in one place for very long, they will themselves destroy that forest area because mm. they would want that kind of food. So nature has given them that instinct that they should keep on moving so that they don't deplete a particular forest area beyond a point. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the nature of how the elephants survive. But mm. there are their area, their forests are fragmented. Uh, they don't have uh, easy access to that other forest that they would otherwise go would have gone straight 50 years ago. Uh, so there are challenges, and uh, so they there are villages have come up. People are uh, doing agriculture. Mm-hmm. Some people are uh, growing sugarcane. Some are growing rice, and these are crops that elephants like. Yeah, and we have suddenly. Uh, removed their forest and we have uh, started doing agriculture there. So instead of the, those, uh, you know, trees that they would otherwise feed on, they are preferring sugarcane or rice or some other crops that human uh, grow, humans grow. And so there is a conflict. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, these are huge challenges, uh, but we have to work with, with the people. We have to make them understand that if you live besides an area where wild animals used to live uh, two two decades ago, three decades ago, then you are bound to experience, uh, you know, wild animals coming to your backyard. I mean, there is no option. Uh, Initially, when leopards started coming in the city of Mumbai, people were like, uh, you know, they they used to go to the government and catch that leopard and take it somewhere else. So that didn't help any time, and that doesn't help anywhere. No, because we have, as a city, encroached on their home yeah. to an extent. So it's it's bound to happen that you know the leopards that are there, they have nowhere else to go but to come towards the city in search of food. These kind of interactions, people have to now accept. Uh, there is no way out, and this acceptance sometimes the degree of acceptance can be less, can be more depending where you are uh, in the city, in, in the rural landscape. So this is where uh, NGOs like us, uh, you know, their, their, their work and their involvement comes uh, into picture. And that plays a very, very important role. Mm-hmm. So we have to be 
uh, working like a bridge between the government departments, uh, between the people, and uh, ensuring that you know there is no miscommunication. Uh, there is there is absolutely uh, you know anywhere if we find a conflict, we will we we try to ensure that there is a solution to that. And mm -hmm. and so there are several challenges, but this is how uh, you know we we have to find our way through. I mean. Every day, I would say, is a new challenge if you're working in the conservation uh, field. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, I'm listening to you. Obviously, Scotland has got its fair share of cool animals, but um, it's quite interesting listening to you talking about the, the kind of big mammals and the big cats that you have over there, because I just... I just can't imagine, you know, living somewhere or growing up somewhere that has these different things in the forest. It's amazing, though. But yeah, I mean, as you say, it's it, the human as the human population grows, you know, it's it's encroaching more on the on the animals habitat. So people are going to have to kind of try and find a way to to live alongside them and yeah. to and to make it work. And that's part of you guys' job, I guess, to to make that work. But just briefly, when you mentioned, you know, with the likes of the tiger and I imagine with the rhino and other species as well, um, there's the kind of illegal wildlife trade aspect of it. I mean, that is a, a big part of what I used to teach people about in the past when regards to tigers, for example, is it's not just yeah, it's not just poaching for their, you know, their fur or their beautiful coat, is it? It's it's different body parts have got some sort of kind of belief in different parts of the world that there's a medicinal kind of property to them so so unfortunately even though as you see the numbers are slowly getting growing and, and you guys are doing loads of amazing work that it's the poaching still going on so it must be I imagine you face lots of challenges in your role that's for sure yes absolutely yeah I mean yeah uh, see illegal wildlife trade is is something that uh, not only India but the world has to worry about mm. because the demand or uh, say in this illegal, illegal wildlife trade, maybe uh, the need, I would put, put it this way, the need for ivory, you know, some people require ivory for sh sh to show their uh, affluence. Yeah. Um, you know, traditional Chinese medicine. I mean, these are the, this is the biggest, biggest uh, culprit, I would say in, in uh, decimation of tiger numbers. Most of the tigers today are Post because there is a demand uh, of tiger bones into uh, traditional tiger uh, uh, traditional Chinese medicine. Not only bones, I mean all kinds of body parts of tigers. Yeah. Uh, even whiskers and you know you know what. So uh, this is a big problem. Uh, if if we are looking at rhino poaching again, the rhino horn, mm -hmm. uh, it it's considered as to, to be an aphrodisiac. Now, and and because of that, there is a huge demand for the rhino horn. So. Apart from these large mammals, you know, see the focus is normally on uh, uh, the tigers and elephants and rhinos. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there has been tremendous wildlife trade in smaller animals like, uh, say, pangolins. Yeah. Uh, you know, which are which are heavily trafficked uh, mammals today in the in, in the world. Uh, then mongoose because the hair is, their hair of the mongoose are used in, in making paintbrushes. So there are several such, uh, you know, demands that uh, humans have created to fulfill their own uh, desires or fantasies or whatever. And it's, it's affecting our wildlife. I mean, if there was actually some uh, genuine uh, uh, scientific reason for that, one can still understand. However, it's not ac acceptable at all. 
but it is just you know perception which mm-hmm. is uh, and which is not true so people have to just understand the more you create demand there would be you know some killings happening somewhere uh, you know india has uh, very strict laws uh, you know india has in uh, the wildlife protection act and uh, i think it's one of the best acts uh, that any that that is that exists anywhere in the world we have uh, five uh, schedules which include a number of you know species that are included in inside you know whether it's a tiger or a great indian bustard or a rhino or you know even parakeets and so there are restrictions people can't just bring any animal from the wild or any bird or any insect from the wild mm-hmm. and keep it at home in captivity that's illegal so mm-hmm. there's a lot of awareness need need to be there uh, you know as far as uh, implementation of these laws are concerned uh, because there is, if there is a demand in the city for a parakeet there is a parakeet or a, you know a, a flock of parakeets killed or trapped somewhere in the forest so this is this is the kind of you know that chain reaction that happens um, and and we have to be absolutely uh, sure that such kind of demands do not are not created anywhere not only in the cities but even in other other towns and villages so yeah well i was talking to one of my other guests recently on the on the podcast we we're talking about pangolins and the and the kind of wildlife trade and so it's not the illegal wildlife trade obviously is one part and then it's just things we were talking about the kind of exotic pet trade and even species that aren't necessarily illegal you know to keep in you know to keep in captivity or to keep as a pet it's just places like scotland you know if you see certain species for sale you know that you can buy it's just we were just chatting about just think about where it's come from and and what has had to be kind of done to to catch it or to to get it so there is um i imagine in places like india yeah the the general kind of pet trade um whether it's the illegal wild side side or the pet trade is is quite a problem as well but that's why as you say it's important to to raise awareness of it and to to hopefully educate people um and i mean do you you have a bit of a background do you in the education and awareness raising side in some of your previous work so do you think that's really important then when working with people today yes absolutely uh, see education and awareness is an ongoing process mm. it uh, it is as important today as it was important about i would say 25 30 years ago uh, and it, it it should be it should just go on because yeah. every new generation that comes must be told about all these things because you uh, maybe one generation may be fully aware but if they don't pass on that necessary information to the next generation uh, probably they will create demand and again the whole thing will start again so you have absolutely uh, this this awareness thing should be an ongoing process and it's very very important in india uh, it's there's one good thing that uh, environment and you know environmental studies is the part of the formal curriculum now Uh, across all different uh, boards so definitely uh, children are introduced to uh, several aspects of uh, environment ecology and you know animal kingdom and stuff like this even in their school days so no one really ca- can say that once they are out of the school they were they were never told about it and this that student is completely <laughs> uh, you know doesn't want to pay attention yeah. to any anything that is taught in the school but otherwise they would definitely hear something you know okay i have heard about great indian bustard or a tiger or leopard or elephant and everything so 
we need to then see how children want to take that information ahead uh, we don't expect every every child to be a conservationist that's not possible but then even if you are in different fields you know one child may be a doctor maybe an engineer or something else but they would still remember that yeah. something that has been told in their school days uh, some some children may become forest officers some may become you know is officers indian administrative service or some such civil services with this knowledge and with this upbringing yeah. they will have a better understanding of what problems uh, exist in in the natural world Mm-hmm. if i say yes to a particular project developmental project will it have a negative impact on the natural flora and flora there so that question mm-hmm. will and should come to the mind of that person if there is proper education being imparted when he or she was in the school days so i think education awareness is absolutely important and mm-hmm. uh, not only into uh, urban areas but even in uh, rural areas uh, because yeah. there people directly go to the forest i mean yeah you you okay i can understand firewood collection is your uh, requirement because you need to cook food every day mm-hmm. but when you go to cook uh, collect firewood you need not collect uh, you know bird chicks you did not collect bird eggs you did not kill some small mammal just because you want to have it for the pot mm. these are these are certain things that need to be told because this is now uh, illegal in india uh, yeah. probably before 1972 uh, when this act was enacted this was legal and people could go out and do some hunting and you know bring home the booty and cook it but now they can't it's illegal so yeah. and and so that information must be passed on to the local communities and uh, and people do listen i mean we are interacting with them on day to day basis it's not that they are not aware of it there would be some people who uh, despite telling them not want to listen to what you, what has been told but this kind of attitude would be in any 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 city any village or you know any profession so we we are fully aware of it but our job is to keep on hammering the message that you know coexistence mm-hmm. there could be a possibility that you know some uh, wild species could be harvested in a in a small way and uh, it does happen in uh, in, a, in many parts of the country but if that harvesting goes beyond a the point then it is not sustainable and then suddenly you will find a drop a severe drop in uh, you know the numbers of the species in that area so one has to be absolutely careful and so you know these kind of awareness sessions should should go on and uh, not just uh, you know school awareness but i think uh, even ngos need to look at different means of spreading awareness for example we have created games uh, board games uh, where children play the games and then understand and they get the information okay oh this is if they are traveling from the forest and they come across a bear or if they come across a snake or a tiger or wild dogs or something like this so what happens and you know what should they do what they should not do so all these are information snippets that they get when they play some games like this uh, so this are different ways of conveying it um, mm. there can be quizzes held uh, for these uh, kids uh, this is how they can learn at the same time enjoy the learning the learning yeah. should not be 
should not be a compulsion mm-hmm. that you know they have to learn and they pass an exam and you know their grade grades are given this kind of system uh, they will start hating the system would I, I should not learn because i want to pass in the in the higher grades i want to learn because i want to educate myself yeah. and remember what i have been told and implement it in in practically in my uh, future days so i think yeah. we, we try our best to <laughs> do something like this yeah it needs to be fun as well and it, it sounds like you've got some cool um projects and and good ways of of as you say educating both the kids and the adults i presume but i was just thinking there that a huge part of any conservation project obviously nowadays is not just protecting the particular species you know it's protecting the environment as a whole because you know you can utilize you know india as you say is famous for the likes of tigers and you can utilize that to kind of get it out to the world but at the end of the day there's so many other thousands of little lesser known species um in in the habitat that the these big animals live that are equally if not more important because they're all part of the ecosystem yeah. and they and they keep it running so True. so what are some of the i mean a couple of the the lesser known species that you guys work with you you mentioned the bird um is it the bustard before but what other species are there that are that you work with with the corbett foundation uh, our approach uh, has been always ecosystem ecosystem centric see tiger conservation can be a species uh, centric concept but if you look at tiger conservation as a as a national level program tiger conservation has had phenomenal success in protecting the entire forest ecosystem uh, because tigers require forest and unless you protect it so you can't really expect the tigers to survive and when we protect the forest there are many other species that automatically get the protection that uh, the tiger gets for example tiger would depend on uh, the deer you know the spotted deer or sambar barking deer there are nilgai uh, you know several other species that exist as a prey of the tiger so if you save the tiger out automatically they get saved now when they are they we want to save them we have to save you know the the grasses and the plant that they survive on so that gets saved when that gets saved there are insects that survive on these plants so insect life is phenomenal in 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 the forest uh, everywhere and especially in india so automatically the entire ecosystem and you know all the faunal aspects get uh, protected when we look at lesser known species in uh, say i would i would talk about the grasslands and deserts that uh, we have in the western part of the country uh, which unfortunately uh, most of these areas are categorized as wastelands uh, very funny i don't know how this term uh, probably uh, it it was started by uh, pardon me saying this but it was started by britishers when they ruled the country uh, <laughs> but it is still it is still carrying on um, no one has bothered to really change it uh, and wasteland as a concept i, I as a, as a student of biology i would say there is nothing waste in any of the yeah. ecosystems even if you see uh visually probably you won't see some trees it doesn't mean that it's a dead uh, ecosystem there are you know insects or spiders and other birds and animals that are dependent on that particular type of ecosystem so if you take take for example the habitat of the great indian bustard now when we talk of great indian bustard conservation we know that when we are talking of this bird conservation there are 26 other threatened bird species 
that are benefited because of this conservation program. Wow. Because we are, we are what when we talk of busted conservation, obviously we have to talk of its habitat. Mm -hmm. And when we talk of its habitat, saving its habitat, it is automatically helping the other uh, species, mm -hmm. which are not known actually. Uh, you yeah. know, that lesser florican and you know other bird species that are existing there. So this is, I think the flagship species uh, must be there because under that uh, flagship umbrella, you are able to save uh, many other species because tomorrow if I stand up and say that, oh, this particular butterfly is extremely endangered and I want to preserve that entire thousand square kilometer area because this butterfly is important. As a biologist, this is a very fair, fair demand. And personally, I would say that it should be considered. But we have to be practical. Unfortunately, that butterfly will not incite that interest into the policymakers' minds because they will always and they have always been attracted to you know large mammals or yeah. something that is large, mega. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if you talk of uh, blue whale, oh wow, it's the world's largest mammal. So you, there would be program to save the blue whale or something like this. So, mm. but if you talk of some uh, jellyfish there, then probably people are not interested. Okay, <laughs> yeah, the no. same, they both survive in the same same uh, ocean, but that's that's different. That's a that's a th human mind thinking it that way. Well, there are other animals like dugong, which is a sea cow, and mm -hmm. I would say, uh, despite all the challenges, India has been really a leader in conservation because. The government of India has set, has started several such programs. They have started program for the conservation of Great Indian Bustard. A conservation breeding program has started of this bird. All because people have realized that only 150, less than 150 exists in the wild. Uh, there is a breeding stock now which is maintained. And, you know, there is some breeding program that is going on in, in the country. And it's, it has started with a modest success. Mm -hmm. uh, apart from that, we have a program for uh, saving the dugong, the sea cow. Oh. We have a program to save the pygmy hog, which is the smallest, uh, you know, uh, pig, uh, wild pig that we have. It's endemic to India. So there are several, several such lesser known species that are little known, but uh, scientists are working on them. And, you know, it yeah. has been highlighted appropriately uh, through various uh, scientific papers and articles. And as long as the policymakers are aware of it and they have programs in place for the conservation of such species, that's good enough. And um, mm. in India has taken some good leads in this. Yeah, no, it sounds like from what I've read and what you've told me, it sounds like there's a lot of good work um, going on. And I think it must be, it will be a challenge, but it must be exciting as well for you to be able to work with so many different species. You know, that as you say, there's the bigger, more well-known ones, but there's so many interesting smaller species as well that um, that are just as important to protect. So it must be yeah, quite a cool job that you've got there. There's just a couple more things that I wanted to kind of ask before um, we have to finish up. But one of the things I was going to ask was, I've been asking everyone over the last few months in the on the podcast, obviously COVID has affected everyone in so many ways, but um, in particular in conservation, you know, it's affected work and the ability to work. I mean, how, how has it affected uh, the Corbett Foundation, have, have you have you still got people on the ground who have been able to go out and do the work or, or has, has it been a lot of people kind of working from home or what's happened? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, COVID has, it has broken the economy of uh, most of the countries. Yeah. 
in India, it has really affected, uh, if, I, if I restrict myself to, you know, tourism and tiger reserves, uh, which are which are very popular destinations for many of the people from across the world. The economy around these tiger reserves has been affected because most of these tiger reserves uh, have become become popular tourist areas, and you know people from Europe and Americas and other parts of the world they come here, and of course also domestic tourists travel to these in large numbers. And over the years, there there has been a tiger economy. Yeah. where uh, people have started their own businesses around this uh, tiger tourism. Uh, they have set up small hotels, restaurants. They have their own uh, game drive vehicles and, you know, they have trained into being guides and uh, they have open shops which provide supplies. So that entire market is around this. So if uh, because of COVID or any such uh, pandemic, suddenly the visits stop, the business stops, the entire thing comes to a standstill, and uh, this is affected, you know, severely. I mean, we we could see it last year also, and this year uh, also to an extent. But last year was worse, and 2020 was the worst, uh, where we 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 there were a lot of uh, incidences of people venturing into the forest areas because they had lost their jobs. So uh, probably to collect more uh, forest products or uh, probably to poach on hunt, one doesn't know. But then uh, there were a lot of incidences of, you know, hunting that took place. There were uh, confiscations that happened uh, by the government. So overall, uh, it was a very, uh, very sorry uh, state, actually. Hopefully, I mean, the Tiger Reserves, they reopened uh, in, in October 2020, and it went on for, you know, at least four months till the time second wave came in. And again, there was a, a stop for some time. So all this affected our work also because there were restrictions, there were lockdowns and uh, restrictions of gathering people around. If we, you know, most of the work that we have, as I said, it is all human centric. So if we have to go and uh, do a medical camp for some village, uh, we can't go in one house and come back. We, you know, it's a, it's a village level activity. And, and in India, it's a very peculiar thing. Once you go in a village, there's a common place where everyone would sort of gather and, you know, they would be around our uh, medical van and waiting for their turn to get medicines and get themselves examined from by a doctor. So this could not happen because there were restrictions. So a lot of our programs, uh, we had to go slow and uh, we also got affected. Uh, we also work with a lot of corporate uh, sector. Um, CSR is one of the major funding channels that we get the funds from. Because COVID struck a lot of companies, uh, you know, their profits went down. If the profits go down, the CSR spends go down. And, you know, there were some uh, agreements that we had signed, funding agreements that we had signed had to be canceled, postponed. So, you know, a lot of turmoil <laughs> happened. Uh, hopefully things, uh, would become, uh, I mean, normal very soon. I hope so. But yeah, uh, yeah. we had, we had, it was several challenge. Everyone. Yeah, I mean, I think it will, it will still be around, obviously, for a while. But I think hopefully it will start to gradually get a bit better, and and everyone will just, I think, yeah, adapt to the new 
the new world that we're all living in. But um, but it's been quite interesting to me speaking to different conservationists all over the world, just how particularly it's affected conservation, for example. And as you see, a big part of that has been the tourism part and the money kind of coming in and, and not being able to move around and, and go to the particular places. But hopefully things will start to keep getting better and keep improving. But the, the last thing I, I wanted to ask you, um, you obviously, you're the director of the Cork Foundation. I mean, could you tell us kind of a wee bit about your route into conservation? Because I know people listening to this, quite a lot of the people I know, they're trying to get work in conservation or they're trying to get into some sort of job kind of working in the conservation field. Could you give us a bit of an idea of, of your route in and like what you did and what you studied and where you worked? Um, and then also just what advice you'd give them? Of course, I, I'll be glad to share this. I'm not sure if, it can, if I can share any, give any advice, and I'm competent enough to do that. But uh, <laughs> since my childhood, I was uh, very much interested in, uh, you know, nature. Uh, I, was a, I, I was a birding enthusiast uh, from a very early age. And uh, that gave me an opportunity to be in the wilderness uh, much, much more than my friends in school. And colleges. I belong to uh, my native place is in Konkan. I mean, that's a that's a region uh, along the west coast of India, and it's a beautiful place where one can enjoy the coastline as well as uh, you know some parts of the Western Ghats. My time spent uh, during my childhood in in that area really, I would say, changed my life. Uh, you know, it it opened many more opportunities. Uh, in front of me. Of course, uh, when I was a child, I went to these places. I never realized that eventually I would get into conservation and be, uh, in, you know, be a professional in this for my life. But uh, somewhere I knew that this is something I love doing. And uh, if if your passion becomes your profession, I think that's the best thing that can happen to anybody in this world. And I'm fortunate that this happened with me. Of course, I would also like to say here that I was a bit luckier than uh, other other people in this field, because in India, unfortunately, there are not many, many opportunities. I would say in the last decade or so, uh, this field has opened up. I mean, there are many more universities offering uh, courses in uh, master's degree courses in you know wildlife management and biological mm. studies, uh, I mean, related biological studies. But when I passed out in 1996, uh, there were very few uh, such opportunities, but I was lucky that I got through, uh, got a job with WWF India. Wow. And uh, I, I was just, I was just a, uh, you know, a postgraduate fresher. And uh, uh, I, I really thank uh, my employers then that they saw some potential in me and they employed me. And uh, I I went on to spend eight long uh, long years with this organization, and it was such a fantastic learning experience because everything everything I learned there, you know, right from uh, talking to people, going into the field and studying uh, nature or uh, writing proposals or articles and everything, you know, it's it was such a fantastic experience. So that was a great learning platform. And I'm still, uh, I'm still learning, but whatever I learned then, I'm able to practice now. Yeah. And this is where that investment of time and uh, energy that I had put in, in WWF, it is giving me the results today. 
it i could visit in wwf i could visit at least you know 60 more than 60 national parks and sanctuaries in this country mm. so of course twice i could visit game reserves in kenya and tanzania so all this gives gives you a you know a kind of a uh, experience and exposure to something big and you start thinking about the national level conservation issues and international level conservation issues and slowly you know you progress into your thinking because when you start your career you are you, you don't really know i mean you are yes you like to see birds you like to see animals mm-hmm. and that's it that's <laughs> that's how you are inside but then when you start working in conservation you soon realize that watching birds is not enough yeah you have to also work towards saving these birds and yeah. this is this is a this is a change that that has to come within yourself and it comes uh, as a part of your job it comes as a part of your realization that you spend um, you know the time that you spend in the field and then it becomes it becomes your a part of your dna mm-hmm. so now everything is conservation for me yeah uh, of course i still am a birder i i enjoy going out in the field with a with a pair of binoculars and without thinking about conservation many times i just watch birds for the fun of it but then coming back you have to also realize that uh, there are there are issues that you have to address and mm-hmm. if you are getting a chance if you are working in an organization uh, where conservation is is a priority then i think you have to make best use of your time and uh, make sure whatever you can uh, do to help in conservation you must do Mm-hmm. so yeah i i i don't know if this 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 will be of any help to anybody <laughs> listening here but then uh, this is this is the story of my life no no i think no i think it will and i think you said there um, you know if you're lucky enough that your passion can become your profession then that that hits the nail on the head you know if you love the, the outdoors or working with animals or being around them the thing is nowadays there are so many different routes and different jobs you know someone can take in conservation it doesn't have to necessarily be you know on the ground working with the animals it can be all sorts of different roles so there's a lot of potential but i think um but yeah definitely just getting out there and 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 looking for opportunities and taking them when they come i think it sounds like you've definitely done that um and how many years have you been with the corbett foundation now is it been a few years yes almost 12 years now 12 years well wow, okay yeah. <laughs> uh, that no it sounds like you've done those cool things um but just finally can you I'll, i'll share obviously information when i when i post the podcast you know about the corbett foundation but how can listeners um learn more about your work and how could they kind of get involved or support the corbett foundation we we have a website uh, corbettfoundation.org uh, we have a very active uh, social media pages uh, facebook and instagram uh, twitter so people can you know follow us on these uh, social media handles and we post our activity updates uh, conservation issues so apart from this uh, you know information sharing and gathering people if if they can uh, support us by way of small donations we have an active payment gateway on our website and that can be used easily by anybody and you know uh, small donations small big donations can be shared to that 
So yeah. So anything that people can do. Yeah, anything anything helps any contribution. As I say, I'll share all those relevant links and stuff with along with the podcast. Um, but I'm I'm sure we could keep blethering and chatting for hours. But um, we have have run out of time, unfortunately, this time, Kedar. But thank you so much for for giving us your time today. It's been really nice to chat to you, and and I hope everything continues to improve it um, over there for you, and things start to get a wee bit better. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much, Katie. It was a real, real pleasure and uh, honor to be on your podcast. And it was lovely chatting with you. And uh, I, I wish you and your entire team and all the listeners uh, best of health. And uh, I, I really wish that they all remain safe and take care of themselves. And it's, it's a, a great goodbye from uh, India. Mm-hmm.